And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please proceed. Heavenly Father, we ask for the grace of Epiphany this morning, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly and more truly. And I pray that my preached words uh, right now would be useful to that purpose for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Epiphanies the manifestations of God surrounding the baptism of Jesus are are many and rich. This is, of course, the start of Jesus' public ministry, and so it's fitting that right at the beginning, God would um, drop this enormous sort of truth deposit uh, about who this person, who up until this moment had only really been known, except for a very few, you know, Mary um, and, and one or two others, very few knew him more, as more than just a, a carpenter in Galilee. We get this voice from heaven in particular, this is my beloved son with whom I well ple- I'm well pleased, which is very clear at face value, but also has multiple layers of connections to Old Testament prophecies, all drawn together in this one huge epiphany of who Jesus is. So I want to unpack that phrase, for the, not phrase, the, what, Jesus, what God the Father said from heaven, um, because it's drawing out multiple scriptures that are revelatory, epiphanic, that's a fancy word, um, of Jesus' identity. So first, this is my beloved son. Now, because we are on this side of the ministry of Christ, we right away recognize the Trinitarian teaching in this, right? Which was not, actually, I think, what would have first come to mind for those who heard this first. Uh, but of course, for us, it is revelatory of that, that until now, the only person who knew that God was Trinity would have been Joseph and Mary because it had been revealed in the revelation the angel had given. Um, the Jewish people had only known really up until then that God is one. And there had been these little whispers, these hints throughout the Old Testament. But here is clearly God speaking from the place where God is, heaven, speaking about his son and the Trinitarian mystery has opened up. But the thing I think would have caught the ear first for his first hearers was this identity of son hearkens to Psalm 2, which was one of the, there's a dozen or so Psalms which the Jewish people in the time of Jesus really kept in close memory of like, these things are pointing to the Messiah. And Psalm 2 was one of those. Also Psalm 8, Psalm 78, a handful of others. But Psalm 2, um, verse 7 says, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. And then goes on to talk about the rule he will have, ruling with an iron scepter, the nations coming to him. And so to be told, to have this voice declare, this is my son, is saying, this is the Messiah, right? This, it's an announcement in a kind of cryptic, connected to the scriptures way. You are my son. This is the Messiah. And not just you are my son, but you are my beloved son, which doesn't occur in Psalm 2. And I spent a couple of days, I'm like, beloved son, beloved son, where does that, is there anything in the scripture about that? And I had to look in a book and found someone else throughout the reference. 
we hear this phrase when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Take your son, your only son, your beloved. Take your beloved son. So I think even this is suggestive. It's not sort of some legal case, right? But it's suggestive of even the Isaac-like identity that Jesus will have as a son of being a sacrifice like Isaac was. This is my beloved son. Of course, not to miss the very just plain meaning that the father loves the son and always has before all time. The son is beloved of the father before he did anything. Which is in contrast, I think, to the next phrase. This is my beloved son. That's just who God the son is. He's just his, he is his beloved son. But in choosing freely to take on this role as the Messiah, the God-man, to take on flesh, to fulfill the prophecies long given, that is what I think then when, when God the Father says, with whom I'm well pleased. He's saying, with, with whom I'm pleased that he's doing this, that this mission of God the Son is taking place. I think that because... This phrase, again, with whom I'm well pleased, any sort of phrases, at first it struck me like, as sort of not very strong, like kind of um, a modest affirmation, right? Like it's not like, who is amazing, with whom I'm well pleased, what is it, why is it such a modest phrase? Well, I think again, it's grabbing an Old Testament prophecy, which actually Matthew, in case we missed it, nine chapters later he's gonna revisit in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42. Behold my sermon, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. So it's almost like God, and then this is carried forth to us by the Spirit through Matthew, is taking these scriptures and weaving them together. Well, I guess well, I don't know how to weave. <laughs> weaving them together. I guess this would not be a very good tapestry. Um, weaving them together. Isaiah, knitting, yeah, that's even better. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved. There's the beloved again with whom my soul is well pleased. So God is trying to tell us, Isaiah 42, guys, Isaiah 42, which is why, in the um, prudence of those who compiled our lectionary years ago, uh, had Isaiah 42 as the reading. So did you catch that? Isaiah 42, very well read by Linda. Behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now the imagery is making sense, right? That's the spirit descending. I, will, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Psalm 2, the king who's going to rule over all the nations. And what will he do? He's going to encourage the discouraged. Right? A bruised reed he will not break, as well as bringing righteousness into the earth for the first time. So what the voice from heaven, what God the Father's voice made manifest on this day is trying to do is saying, this guy who you knew as a carpenter, Actually, all these scriptures are about him. He is the king to come. He is the son of the eternal son of the eternal father. He is beloved. He will be offering sacrifice. And his spirit is upon him. The spirit, which remember, I mean, Jesus and John the Baptist working as a sort of tag team, had previously been silent for 400 years. Since Malachi, the spirit had not spoken to the people of Israel. And now he's speaking through John the Baptist preaching and then actually rests on Jesus, which also shows the sort of handoff from John the Baptist preparing the way. Okay, now the Spirit is actually resting on the Messiah. And in this 
Yeah. The beloved son, his identity before all ages, his messianic role with whom the father is well pleased. Um, I completely lost track in my notes here, so I don't even remember what else I wanted to say about this. Oh, yeah. So, um, God the Son has taken on this um, journey of downwards humility, right? It's what's famously sung in Philippians 2, right? Though having equality with God, he did not count equality with God's Son to be grasped, but in humility, he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. So we see this sort of continual descent, and it begins with just taking on flesh, flesh which is changeable and causes pain and is limited and finite. That was already just becoming incarnate, which we remember just two weeks ago. That's the beginning of this profound act of descent, as it were. Um, descent in grandeur and, and glory, not descent of place, right? because God remains everywhere. But then, and then this journey would continue sort of in its ultimate lowness, not only to death on a cross, but even down to the place of the dead, Hades, right? The living God goes all the way, suffers the death of a criminal, death on a cross, the place of the dead, before being raised from the dead, ascending and returning to the Father. So it steps along the way. He also submits to the humbling act of receiving a baptism for repentance. But Jesus didn't need to repent. He hadn't sinned in any way, right? And yet he submits in repentance as part of this journey of lowliness. To sort of explain, well, why would someone who needs no repentance submit to a baptism of repentance? And obviously John the Baptist knew, like, I don't think this is right. And John was right at the level of appearance. Of course, Jesus needed no repentance. I want to quote a contemporary father who really helped me understand this passage. Jesus Christ does repent, but just not for himself. He has no need of repentance in the sense of a personal reorientation of mind, but in a deeper ontological sense, in his humanity, and specifically through his death on a cross, he repents for all humanity, as it were, on behalf of all humanity, by tearing down the wall of enmity between us and God. So even though Jesus didn't need to repent, he's showing us the way that we need to follow, the way that Adam didn't. Remember when God called out Adam in the garden? He doesn't repent. He just makes excuses and dodges and covers up. So Christ, the second Adam, does it the right way. No, no, no. We come before God with, with repentance and baptism. And with this, God is well pleased. So this all has meaning, um, significance for us in terms of just understanding Jesus rightly. But also because of what Jesus has done for us, it also has meaning for us in that the same dual affirmation that Christ receives from the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We also receive that dual affirmation now that we are in Christ. Now that he has given us the gift of forgiveness and we've been reconciled to the Father. That in the same way that before he did anything, before he ever took on flesh, just from all eternity, before the world was made, God the Father loved God the Son. Now, by grace, that is true of us. We have been given an identity that is fixed. We are God's beloved children. And I love that the collect of the day, names it specifically, by adoption. Jesus is a son by nature. We are children by adoption. But by that adoption, 
This is now just true of us. This is a fixed statement. You are beloved by Almighty God. You are a beloved child. I am a beloved child of Almighty God. And when we follow his will by the power of the Holy Spirit, we also do things that please him, right? with whom I'm well pleased. And so I think when we think about seeking to live into the Christian life, to follow the call of God, the commandments of God, it's not a question of like, will I be a child of God or not? That's already a given. You have faith. You've been baptized. That's fixed now. The question is just what kind of child will you be? One who pleases the Father or does things that day that don't please the Father, which need repentance? Do you see the difference between sort of affirmation of action versus just affirmation of identity? That's what's revealed about Christ and also is now true of us as we are grafted into Christ. We actually, thanks be to God, now you all don't have a choice, as it were, of are you a child of God or aren't you? You are. The question is just what kind of child will you be, pleasing or not pleasing? And one of the things just that I want to highlight, kind of by analogy from this interaction of John the Baptist and Jesus, that is pleasing to the Father, I think generally, I believe generally, is um, Jesus continually, time and time again through his ministry, beginning with this incident, does the thing that is more humble than was expected. Right? When he rides in as a king, he rides in on a donkey. Right? Um, Caesar would ride in on elephants. <laughs> um, I think. I think I might be mixing up a history lesson there. Um, okay. But um, Jesus is constantly surprising us with his humility. Even here, he doesn't need any repentance. John tries to stop him, and yet he says, no, let it be done. Baptize me. And I think similarly in our Christian life, there'll be voices that will be sort of these dark imitations of, like John the Baptist, sort of saying, oh, you don't need to, like, go that humble. You don't need to, like, accept that much difficulty or suffering. You don't need to, you know, the sort of voice of, like, no, this is too much, right? Too intense. And yet, to take the sort of lower road than is expected, to take the humbler way than even other Christians would say we should take, I think is generally pleasing to the Father. Um, so I offer that as just a sort of application from this gospel this morning. But thanks be to God who has made us his children and who has given us the double grace that we have the capacity now by him to please him. That we actually can do things that when in the smallest things of the day that no grand exterior calling is needed, simply following him in the midst of our lives. And when the Spirit brings to mind a conviction and with grace we ask for his help and we follow it, we please the Father just as Jesus pleased the Father in his role as Messiah. Amen.